0: I have been following this series each Sunday night and I've heard several of the gentlemen who have preached or are going to preach in this series all make the statement that they're glad that they didn't get patience <laughs> and it's, it's interesting to me when I got patience I, uh, I thought this is a mistake and uh, I'm that guy, I'm like the little boy who prayed, God give me patience and give it to me right now. And so it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And uh, yet the others must be farther along with me in their spiritual walk because I looked at the rest of the list and I thought, well, none of them are any better fitting for me than this one. And so uh, for me, this is as good as any. And so here we are. But uh, I even thought that uh, maybe the pastoral staff was goading me a little bit and uh, with having me have this until I found out that there was really a casting of lots, a holy casting of lots. And then it dawned on me that uh, it wasn't the pastoral staff, but like Jonah, it's the Lord who's goading me um, with this. And so uh, I'm glad to do this this evening. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. I'd like to make some observations concerning the fruit of the Spirit, just a couple of them. The first is this, that the fruit of the Spirit, at the same time, is interrelational, has an interrelational aspect to it and a relational aspect to it. And the interrelational aspect to it uh, may be seen. I thought Drew did a good job of bringing this out last week. It was difficult for him to preach about peace without talking about love. And that makes perfect sense because they are interrelated. When you think about peace, for instance, how can a person have peace and not have joy? How can they not uh, um, have good relationships with others and be in chaos in their lives and still experience joy and exhibit the joy that comes from knowing Christ? Also, um, how can a person have love without the joy of knowing Christ, without the joy of fellowship and faithful obedience to Christ, and without the joy of the hope that we have in Christ. And so these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit have an interrelational aspect to them, they are connected. But also, as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, there's a relational aspect to it, and first and foremost, it is evidence of our relationship to Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of God works in us to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so it is evidence of us being children of God and a part of the family of God, which brings me to another aspect of its relatedness. Not only does it show our relationship to Christ, but it is to be related, shown in our relationships with one another. And so as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we see this inter relatedness to it and a relatedness to it that's all very important for us to understand I believe but tonight as I said we're looking at patience and I'd like us to to look at this with just four simple questions what is it where does it come from what does it look like and what are its practical implications so what is it Where does it come from? What does it look like? And what are its practical implications? Well, what is it? Well, to understand patience in the word of God, I think that, of course, we need to go to the word of God. And as we think about God's word, God's word is God's revelation of himself. And so as we look at patience, it is best, I believe, to start with God himself and to look to him. And so as we think about this, how does God describe himself, and and we see this starting out in the Old Testament, and we'll go through um, in the New Testament, but as God describes himself in the Old Testament, probably the best passage for us to think of is Exodus 34, where God describes himself to Moses. And so this is what God said about himself to Moses, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate, and gracious, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. The Old Testament writers and the law, the prophets, and the writings, all three sections of the Old Testament writers Re- recall this statement of the Lord. And we see this from David in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. David wrote, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve Or repaid us according to our iniquities. Now, this expression, slow to anger, we saw it in Exodus, we see it here again in Psalm 103, and we see it other places as well, as as God is described. And what it literally means in its original language of Hebrew is it long to anger. It means that it takes a long time to make God angry literally, long to anger. And so we see some of our translations. I believe the King James I grew up with uses the term long-suffering. But it is this idea of being long to anger. It takes a long time to get angry. Now that's interesting because as God describes himself as one who is long-suffering or long to anger or slow to anger, it's interesting the, the bad rap God gets in the Old Testament from many a Sunday school teacher and many a pulpit. Because if you would listen to, and by the way, I've had experience listening to both. And if you listen to many of them, what you hear is you would think that the God in the Old Testament is ready to blow up at the slightest provocation that happens. He's just looking for somebody to beat down. He's just looking for someone to wipe out. But regardless of one's preconceived notions about some section of the Bible, or even about God himself, it's interesting that the Bible really sheds a lot of light on who God is. Isn't that news to us? But as we look at the Bible itself and see how God relates to people, and this is in the Old Testament as well as in the New, but we see, for instance, in Isaiah 30, verse 10. The Lord is speaking of the people of Israel through his prophet, and this is what he says of God's people. They are a rebellious people, deceptive children, children who do not want to listen to the Lord's instruction. So this is the God in the Old Testament. What we're waiting for is what's he gonna do to them then? He's gonna get them, he's gonna get them good. Is it going to be plagued this time? Maybe there's going to be a drought. Who knows? He's going to get them. Maybe some fire will do them some good. Notice what he says in Isaiah 30 verse 18 as he responds to this. He says, therefore, speaking of this rebellion, this rebellious people, therefore, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion for the Lord is a just God. And he goes on in his prophecy as he talks about the rebellion of the children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 48 verse nine, God said this, I will delay my anger for the sake of my name and I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise so that you will not be destroyed. Amazing. And another thing, as as we think about this view of an Old Testament God versus a New Testament God, the writer of Hebrews helps us out with an idea that might might ought to get out there in some pulpits and Sunday school classes. And that is the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we look in the New Testament and we start to see this attribute of God, we see the same thing. And so as we look, for instance, Paul speaking of God in Romans 2, 4, he says this, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to leave you to repentance. And Peter speaks of this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This word for repentance in the New Testament is very similar to that expression in the Old Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, there are actually two Greek words that are usually translated patience in our English translations. Now, one of the words refers to having perseverance under suffering and trials and waiting on God, and it's more about the circumstances of life. But the second, which is what we see here in Galatians 5, when Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit The second one has the idea of literally being large or distant or far away anger. It literally has the idea of someone who pushes anger far away from them. It's the idea of someone who will not have outbursts of anger. It's someone who bears the offenses of others, including believers, and does not seek retaliation or revenge Against them. Paul explains this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, As God's chosen ones, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to forgive. Well, how has the Lord forgiven us? He has forgiven us completely. He has forgiven us without any inkling of retaliation, but he has taken our sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west and he has forgiven us completely and what we are to do just as the Lord has forgiven you just as the Lord has forgiven me so we are to forgive one another and so as we think about patience what is it it really is defined by God himself And as he has patiently and continues to patiently bear with us and care for us and still love us, we are to be that to one another. And it is a commitment that is like unto the commitment that God has to his people. And so... It's defined by God So as we think about this It demands strength It demands stamina It it, it involves being able to exercise Control over our reactions to others And none of that Is natural to us None of that Comes naturally from any of us From childhood And it, it, it hasn't changed It is not a part of our nature So As we think about this, we realize the difficulty we are in as we are called to have this fruit in our lives and yet it is not what naturally comes from us. It reminds me of a poem I heard many years ago and uh, found it again. It goes like this, to dwell in love with saints above, oh, that will be glory, but to dwell below with saints we know, ah, that's a different story. And so where does it come from? Well, it comes from God. We wouldn't have this series if we didn't realize this, you've already figured this out, that it is the fruit of the spirit. God plants the seed, he waters the seed. It is his word that nurtures the seed. It is the church that meets to encourage us in the growth of that seed and at the heart of it all is God's eternal purpose to make his people like their eldest brother the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way in Romans 8:29, "For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers." You see God planted the seed of the fruit of the spirit in us so that we would bear the family resemblance of our heavenly father and our eldest brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's way of creating is that everything produces after its own kind. As I was thinking about this here, and I think back to Genesis, everything that God created produces after its own kind. And what does Jesus reveal? He reveals to us that he is the vine, we are the branches and what he produces is after his own kind. It comes from him. And by the way, it's not multiple fruits, just like we don't see an apple tree that gives apples and oranges and peaches all on the same tree. Apple trees produce apples. Christ, through the work of the Spirit in us, produces Christ-likeness and that we are called to be like Christ. That is the fruit of the Spirit. So it, it comes from God. So how does it work? This patience, this forbearance, this slow this to angerness, if that's a word, with others comes from God but we are responsible to display it. We're responsible. We must be devoted to God and make every effort to be committed to cooperating with the work that God is doing in us and through us. Paul wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7. He said, like an athlete, train yourself to be godly. And a, a great passage for us to think about this is Philippians chapter 2, the last part of verse 12, and then into verse 13. As Paul wrote to believers at Philippi, he said, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what he's saying. He's saying, We need to work on it, we need to exercise it, we need to be devoted to it. And then he says, For it is God who is working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so as we think about this, God is the one who has planted the seed of, of the fruit of the spirit in us and it is in us and yet we are called to cooperate to work and to be faithful in that process. It is not a work unto salvation, it is works that shows evidence of salvation. And that is what we have been called to do. It is not one of these things that we just kinda say, okay, I'm saved now, I've got the the spirit in me, and so let's watch it grow. No, it's not how it works. We are called to a devotion to Christ, and as we are devoted to him, what it does, God works in our lives to do uh, his work according to his good purpose. So we devote ourselves to godliness realizing that the power that enables our obedience comes from the spirit of God and not from ourselves. So what are its practical implications? One, it means that we embrace our family resemblance to our heavenly father and to our eldest brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. We embrace it. Uh, I, uh, I, I was telling uh, um, Brother Jeff and, and our pastor, um, Dr. Cook here, uh, about my grandmother, and she had a lot of sayings. Uh, my grandmother, uh, on my dad's side, did not like me very much. Now, she didn't live long enough to really get to, I was a child when she passed away, But um, the reason she didn't like me, she would look at me and say, "You look, you look just exactly like your dad." And uh, I realized as I got a little older, she's the one that gave birth to my dad. (laughs) But the thing is, it makes sense that we look like our parents. It it, it is a part, and, and there is a picture for us to understand, I think, with that. And so as, as we see this here, we need to embrace that, embrace the family resemblance. Uh, my brother would always get angry when he heard my grandma say this because he looks exactly like my mom looked and he, he always said, I wish I did look like my dad. So uh, came from a really troubled family for sure. And none of us were very far on looks anyhow, it didn't really matter. But how are we to embrace our family resemblance? Well, one, I think, is by looking at the, at the offenses against us the way Joseph did when his, father, when his brothers um, sinned against him. In Genesis chapter 50, verses 20 and 21, we see his response to his brothers. What happened with his brothers? I'm sure most of you know the stories but what happened basically is this, uh, and in fact, Dr. Cook mentioned it recently in, in this series in Exodus, but uh, as we think about uh, um, Joseph's brothers, they they hated Joseph, they were jealous of Joseph, they conspired to kill Joseph. At the last minute, they, they decided not to kill Joseph, but to sell him off into slavery. And he was taken hundreds of miles away from the land where he grew up with his family, in chains to Egypt where he was sold to serve as a slave. He was, as a result of what his brothers did, he he ended up um, being falsely accused and was in prison for at least two years. And all of this was precipitated by his brothers. And then his brothers show up in Egypt where God had miraculously worked in Joseph's life and elevated him to a position of great power and they were before him submitting to him asking for food they didn't realize who he was and finally he revealed himself and when he did they were afraid and everything was cool because they thought well as long as our father's alive he won't do anything to us but what happened their father Jacob died and then they're like, uh-oh, now we're in trouble. Because he was withholding just, just because of our father. And so they go to him and plead for their lives, basically. And this is his response. Verses 20 and 21 in Genesis 50. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival Of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's how we need to respond. We need to understand that God uses other people. Now, was Joseph saying what they did was right? No, he said you meant evil, and they did. But understand this. That God uses sometimes good people in our lives to impact us. Sometimes he uses our enemies to impact us. I think about Job. God used Satan to impact Job. But what did Job come out of that? At the end of the story, Job looks to God and he says this, I had heard of you before, but now I see you. And God used even Satan as his tool to grow and mature this godly saint, Job. What Satan did wasn't right, but God used it in Job's life. And he's used it in our lives as well as we read Job's testimony. And so understand that we need to have an eternal, a heavenly perspective on these things. And that God is at work to mold us and make us again into the family resemblance. And we need to recognize that and look to what God is doing in the midst of even grievances like we see with Joseph and his brothers. Another thing we need to do by embracing this family resemblance I I believe it's by forgiving others not just seven times but 70 times seven times you remember in Matthew 18 Peter comes to him and asks how many times should I forgive my brother someone who who sinned against me and and he said seven times and the Lord said no 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 70 times seven in other words more times than you can count And we need to recognize that is what we are called to in forgiveness. It's not this idea that I'm keeping count and when I get to seven, I'm going to box them right in the nose. No, it's not one of those things. It is a continual going and forgiving. Why? Because we remember again that we need to forgive as God has what? Forgiven us. And continues to forgive us, you see. And so we need to remember how much God has forgiven us. And we need to realize that the patience of God defines the patience that his children are to show one another. The patience that he shows us is the very patience that he calls us to show to one another. And so I'd like to read a a rather long passage here, and you can join me if you'd like in Matthew 18, but I thought this would be a good good way to to close our our time, and I'd like to read this passage and then make just a few comments and uh, be done. But in Matthew 18, beginning with verse 21, says, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to sell or settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, about 20 bucks. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back, the very same words that this man had said to the master. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. I want you to notice something as we think about bearing with one another and having patience with one another as as Galatians 5 speaks of. We don't forgive to be forgiven. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Evidence that you have been forgiven is that you have a spirit and a desire to forgive. You're predisposed to that. That is what you want. Not to retaliate, not to get back, but To forgive We are patient with others Because God Is patient With us The life of the church Depends on this Our witness To other believers Or to unbelievers rather To unbelievers Our witness to unbelievers Depends on this Our own spiritual growth Depends on this Neglect Of the fruit of the spirit, any aspect of it is a very serious thing. And lacking patience and being unforgiving, keeping count of wrongs will steal the joy from you like no other thing. Our fulfilling our purpose for living depends on this. Why, why are we here? Why, why do we exist? We just read this this morning in our BFGs. That the Lord created all things for what purpose? For his glory, for himself. And if we are here to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, then that will not happen. If we do not practice bearing with one another with the patience that God bears with us. And that's what we've been called to. Well, let's bow forward of prayers. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is daunting. Because as we look at each of these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, we recognize that we are so far short of what you have called us to be. But the good news is that your Spirit dwells in us. And that you have given us everything we need to live lives of godliness. So Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your church that helps and encourages. And we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ. And the life that we have in him and that the patience and forbearing that you have shown us by giving your son for us in spite of our obstinance and rebellion against you. Father, I pray that your spirit would so work in each of us that we would truly bear the family resemblance. And whether people like how we look or don't like how we look, at least they could say the reason they look at us the way they do is because we look like our Heavenly Father and our eldest brother, Jesus Christ. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray.